If you recall from our lesson last week, one of the things that we brought out was really the distinction between the kinds of people that were accepting of the gospel and the kinds of people that were rejecting the gospel. Uh, If you remember, Jesus had been doing these miracles and the the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the rulers, they they were just digging in real hard on their rejection, even going so far as to say, well, the only way that he can cast out these demons is because he is of the demons. He, he is a worker of Satan himself. And, and Jesus just uses this uh, to, highlight, to highlight how ridiculous things have gotten, that they are seeing the evidence right in front of them and they're rejecting it. But by contrast, those that were not advantaged in this world, so those that were poor, those that were sick, those that were disabled or maimed or cast out or known to be sinners, these individuals were accepting the gospel by, by the multitude. And we pointed out that it's because at this point in time, they had no hope. The gospel was a message that required them to change, yes. So, so every group that heard the gospel preached to them, it required the same thing of them. It required change. But for those that were advantaged in this world, they, they didn't really need hope. They, they were living a good life, whereas these other individuals, uh, they, they were in need of hope, and they're the ones that were responding to the gospel. And so as we come to the end uh, of this section that we were supposed to cover last week, we find this grouping of parables. So Matthew chapter 13, uh, and the first one is probably one of the most well-known parables, and it's the parable of the sower. So this is Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 23. And this is probably a familiar parable. If you think about how individuals at that time would sow a field, they would have their seed and they would go out and they would just cast it. So this wasn't a very, uh, you know, necessarily accurate or, or specific method. They're casting the seed and the seeds falling in different areas. And so Jesus teaches this parable of these different soils. So a sower goes out, he's sowing the seed and the seed falls on different kinds of soils. And as he explains later, uh, verses 18 through 23, uh, he tells them this is talking about different kinds of hearts, talking about different kind of individuals that are going to receive the gospel that is going out to them. And so what I think is interesting, and I I put this up there, uh, just note that three out of the four that were given, they're going to receive the gospel in some way. Uh, Maybe maybe this is a little bit surprising to you because when we think about our evangelistic efforts, so often we characterize them a lot differently. You know, you think, okay, if if I go out and if I can talk to a hundred people over the next couple of years, you know, maybe one or two of those people will take me up on my invitation to come to services or to have a Bible study or, or to do something. You know, we, we, I think in a lot of ways, uh, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. We want to be realistic. We don't want to go out there and think that everybody we talk to is just going to come right along with us and be converted. But, but maybe sometimes we're a little bit too pessimistic, you know? Now, like I said, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to mischaracterize what's going on here. We're told that it's going to be very few that actually receive the word, understand it, stick with it, apply it, and then eventually bear fruit. But it just jumped out at me that in this parable of the soils and the sower, three out of the four, 75% of them are going to receive the word in some manner. They're not just going to reject it out of hand. And a lot of times, I know at least in my mind, when I think about my own evangelistic efforts, I've got a lot more pessimistic view out of it. And maybe it would encourage us to increase our evangelistic efforts if we knew that you know, perhaps a greater number of individuals would at least have an initially positive reception to what we're bringing to them. Again, it's not saying that everybody's going to be converted. It's not saying that if we talk to 10 people, that seven of them are going to come. But I just, I just kind of, I just noticed that, that, that maybe that would be a lesson for us. Maybe that would be a takeaway for us that as we are out there, because that is our job today, 
You know, it's been said that we should be seed slingers. You know, we should be out there spreading the gospel. But as we're doing that, maybe we should have a little bit more optimistic view of the initial reception to the gospel. Um, and I just put up there, it's interesting that if you look at a lot of these studies, uh, still 70% of the United States describes themselves as Christian. Now, that is, that, is a very loose, uh, that is a very loose term, especially as individuals use it today. But seven out of 10 people at least claim, and you know, if somebody's sending them a random survey, they at least claim to be a follower of Christ. And so if we are out there and we are saying, listen, 70% of people claim to be a follower of Christ, I would love to, you, I would love to talk to you more about Christ. I would love to talk to you more about the teachings of Christ. I would love to sit down with you and read and study the teachings of Christ. Again, all, all of this to say maybe we should be a little bit more uh, positive or optimistic when we think about our own evangelistic opportunities here in the community. Uh, again, it is, it is few that will actually receive the word, understand it, and bear fruit. That's a process that is borne out over time. But what I think is interesting also is that sandwiched in, uh, in between the giving of this parable and the explanation of this parable is the purpose of parables. Uh, if you look there in Matthew chapter 13, and that is verses 10 down through about verse 17, uh, the disciples come to him and say, why are you speaking to them in parables? And, and as I read it, I, I see here these parables are the ultimate separating tool. Again, think about these scriptures in context. We have these multitudes of individuals, in, individuals that are coming to Jesus to hear uh, what he is saying, but also a great number of individuals that are just coming to be entertained. A great number of individuals that are just coming to see something spectacular. Just as the parable has said, there are individuals that are going to receive the word but then they're going to get choked out by the cares of the world, you know, or, or they're going to be distracted and go after other things. They're not going to take it and allow it to, to, to root itself deep within it. So these parables are a separating tool. To those that truly desire to learn of the kingdom, Jesus is able to teach them these, these heavenly truths, these truths about the kingdom, what the kingdom really is. Again, he's, he's fighting against these ideas that he has come to establish an earthly kingdom that he has come to provide a, a military conquest, that he has come to provide uh, some kind of social justice or social safety net. We're going to talk a little bit about that later. He, he has not come to do that. He has come to explain to them what the true kingdom of heaven is. And parables are an effective tool for teaching these heavenly truths, but putting it alongside or putting it in terms that they can understand, in things that they are familiar with. But for those that are just there to see something spectacular, those that are just there to pass the time or to hear some new thing. Remember, that's kind of what the, uh, I think it talked about the philosophers, those Athenian philosophers. They love to just come and just discuss and talk about some new thing. So for those that were there just to hear and talk about some new thing, these truths would be shrouded. So this, this was the purpose of parables. It was to separate out. As we go a little bit further throughout the chapter, Maybe highlighting this idea of reception, we have two other parables. We have the parable of the tares, uh, some refer to it as the parable of the wheat and the tares. And then a little bit later in the chapter, verses 47 down through about verse 52, we have the parable of the dragnet. And I believe that both of these are getting at the same idea. The gospel has the power to change lives. But again, it's naive to think that we are going to live in this world where everybody is going to recognize that. We are going to have to live and work and labor and teach right alongside individuals, the vast majority of whom are going to eventually reject the gospel. And I think that's what you see here in the wheat and the tares and also in the dragnet. Uh, a tear was a, was a weed 
But it looked very similar for a period of time to the wheat. So we have this parable presented where somebody goes out, they sow a field full of wheat, but the enemy comes along and they sow tares right alongside it, these weeds, but they look very similar. Isn't that the truth today? We have lots of individuals, again, 70% of the United States that claim to be Christians. So in some ways they may appear very similar to us. They may even claim to be Christians right alongside, but yet there's going to be a time when there's going to be a separation. When those, as it comes to the, to the harvest, and those are going to be separated. The same thing with the parable of the dragnet, verses 47 through 52. This parable where a great catch of fish are all brought together in this net. But then when they bring them out, they're going to be separated. The good fish, the useful fish versus those that are going to be cast away. And he says in verse 49 of the chapter, and I think this applies to both the, 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 the tares, the tares and the wheat and the dragnet. If you look there at verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. What I want us to take away from this is that we have a responsibility and this responsibility is not going to allow us to come out of the world. If you think about uh, Jesus' prayer in John, you can go over to John and look there in chapter 17. As he is praying for his disciples, note these words in John 17, down in verse 15. As he's talking about some of the things that they're going to face, some of the persecutions, some of the tribulations, the task that lies in front of them, the same task that we have today, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So even though we are the wheat, even though we are the ones that are eventually going to be separated and we are going to be uh, in the kingdom of heaven, we have a responsibility to live and to work right alongside those who do not. And that's an opportunity. That is an opportunity for us. That is an opportunity for us. If we were to come out of the world, what opportunity would we have to shine our light? What opportunity would we have to show individuals that are looking for hope what hope looks like? And so we have a responsibility. And I think he's, he's presenting here that you are going to live and you are going to work right alongside those that are faithful. And I think that leads into this other collection of parables. Uh, verses 31 through 34, 44 to 46, and 51 to 52. We have the mustard seed, we have the leaven, we have the hidden treasure, and the pearl of great price. Two of those... I think are talking about the spread of the gospel. So when you think about the mustard seed and you think about the leaven, uh, the mustard seed is tiny, but yet it talks here about this little mustard seed. If you look in verse 32, it says, indeed, it is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. The same thing with the leaven, the small amount of leaven that has a great impact. You think about again, the wheat and the tares, one righteous individual can make a tremendous impact on those around them. Even think about over time. How many stories, maybe you know somebody in your own family. One person responded to the gospel and was converted. And then you think about that ripple effect throughout the generations. Maybe now they convert their spouse. Maybe now these individuals have faithful children. Those faithful children will go on to marry spouses and have children and convert others. You have one individual that responded to the truth of the gospel, and now you have this tiny mustard seed that has grown into this beautiful tree. Same thing, same thing with that idea of the leaven. We can have one individual, and it may not feel like much. It's just one choice, one decision to lead a faithful life, but it has a tremendous impact, and that's how the gospel works. 
You know, it may not seem like this huge movement with millions upon millions of people changing the world. And that's not how it was designed. It was designed for individuals to change the world, one person and one choice at a time. No less powerful, in some ways even more powerful. But that's how the gospel works, is these one, one individual making a choice and spreading. But it's these individuals that recognize the value of what they have found. And I think that's what these other two parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, individuals that have found the truth of the gospel and they recognize that hope. They recognize exactly what they have and they would give everything they have to get it. They would give everything they have to get it. You may think of just a couple of chapters over in Matthew chapter 16. What profit is it, uh, verse 26, to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Put a different way, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Individuals that recognize the truth that is presented there. That when they have found the gospel, when they have found the kingdom of heaven, and they know what's there, they're not going to keep it to themselves. They're going to spread it because they realize just how powerful, how powerful it truly is. Any thoughts on, on these parables that are presented to us? I, I know there's, there's just a lot there. Any thoughts on Matthew chapter 13 or any of the parables that talk about the different receptions of the gospel? Okay, Let, let's go on and start covering the material that we have for, for this week. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm going to spend, this is, one of those, this is one of those sections where we have a lot of overlap. So uh, at different times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all going to uh, have a part in this account. But I'm going to try to base our lesson for the most part out of Mark. We haven't spent a lot of time in Mark. Uh, and Mark has a very nice uh, chronological account. So we're going to go through Mark chapter 4, 5, and 6. And at times, we will cross over into the other, uh, the other Gospels. I wanted to put this up here. We've been talking about, uh, excuse me here. We've been talking about the Galilean ministry. And, and this is this period of time. And we said it, it could be anywhere from a year to two years where Jesus is ministering. And he's primarily spending most of his time uh, around, around the Sea of Galilee. It's also called um, the Lake of Gennesaret. It's called the Lake of Tiberias. You're going to see it referred to a bunch of different ways. But he's spending a lot of time up there at the northern part. So you see where Capernaum is. Uh, Capernaum is there, kind of there at the north. And I know this lake is kind of turned on its side. So it's maybe not the easiest to see. Uh, but he spends a lot of time up there at the north in Capernaum and in Bethsaida. And, and a lot of times, especially as we notice today, it talks about him going back and forth across the lake. This, uh, from, from what I've read, uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, this lake... This lake was extremely well populated. Uh, you can kind of see here, they've got all these different harbors all the way around the lake. All these different harbors on, on the south, the north, the east, the west. Um, one of the things that I read, and I think this was uh, quoting from Josephus, said that it was almost continuous population all the way around. So when you think about what we're reading today, where Jesus and his disciples get in a boat and they go from one side to the next, or they go along the coastline, he's taking this opportunity to teach these individuals. So, you know, Galilee is, the, this, this region of Galilee is on the eastern side, the eastern and the, and the northern side, and he's spending a lot of time in this area. Um, this, this kind of highlights a couple of different things to us. Uh, we're going to look, if you can notice, do I have a laser pointer on here? I don't know if I do or not. Yeah. If you kind of see right here, 
This is uh, the, the region of the, uh, the Gergesenes. And so this is where we read about the swine, when he cast those demons out into the swine. But you can see when he sailed from Capernaum down to this area. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about when he sailed uh, back over here, when he went from Gennesaret over to Capernaum and Bethsaida. And I'll come do the same thing over here as well for those folks. As he sailed across here, that was the storm that he comes out to them on the water. So I, I just thought this was interesting. Uh, this, this lake the, is about eight miles, seven or eight miles wide. So at this kind of widest point, it's about seven or eight miles, 13 miles from here to there. Uh, from what I read, depending on the weather conditions, you're talking about two to three hours to cross it. So if you, if you were going, if you have here going from one side over to the other, if he was going from the Gergesenes, maybe to Gennesaret, or going from uh, Tiberias right here up to Capernaum, you were looking at about a two to three hour journey. And of course, the weather could have an impact on that. So I just thought this was interesting. I wanted to put that up there so that you could maybe have a picture in your mind as we talk about them crossing back and forth and teaching along the shoreline, going to all these different cities. So let's begin in Mark chapter 4. And again, I I want you to keep in your mind what we've been talking about, this difference in reception um, and the kinds of people that are responding to the gospel. So uh, Mark chapter 4, and let's look in verse 35 down through about verse 41. Uh, Jesus says in verse 35, let us cross over to the other side. They leave the multitudes. And it says that I get this idea, there's a little flotilla of boats, Um, you know, sometimes we read, when we talk about the disciples, we think of the 12. It seems here to me that there's this group of individuals that may be more than just the 12 that are traveling and following Jesus. Especially here, you look at this situation, it says uh, there in verse 36, other little boats were also with them. So it very well may have been that you had Jesus and the 12, or you had Jesus and more than that. And these other individuals that are getting in boats that are following him wherever he goes so that they can hear his teaching. But this great storm, this great storm comes up and the individuals that are on the boat with him, they're getting concerned. And we see in verse 38, they come to him and just note the way they phrase this. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So so not coming to him asking for advice, not coming to him asking what should we do, not coming to him saying, is there anything that you can do about this? Do you not care that we are perishing? And I think this provides the context for his rebuke. It was not that they were coming to him asking. It was not that they were coming to him seeing, uh, seeking advice. It says, do you not care that we are perishing? And maybe I'm reading a little bit uh, too much into that. But has he demonstrated anything but care and compassion up to this point in time? He has gone above and beyond to demonstrate care and compassion. Healing the sick, healing the lame, providing for them, teaching for them, spending night and day with these individuals. And they come to him and they say, do you not care that we are perishing? And and, and of course, you you can draw so many parallels to our own lives. How many times has our Lord and Savior demonstrated to us day in and day out his care and his concern for us? And how he provides for us, how he sustains us, how he blesses us. But yet we have have a storm in our life and we come to him and, and, and we say, do you not care that this is happening to me? Of course he cares. Of course he cares. Jesus demonstrates here uh, as, he, as he calms the storm with, with just a word. He says, peace be still. And it says in verse 39, the wind ceased, there was a great calm. And he turns to me and says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? 
I, I can only imagine that in response to my own prayers, the Lord has said this so many times, why are you so fearful? And why do you have so little faith? How truly different are the events that we are facing today from the events that we faced five years ago, 10 years ago, 500 years ago, 5,000 years ago? They're not different. They're not different to God. Why are you so fearful? Why do you have such little faith? That's a rebuke to us and a rebuke to me as well when we think about what the master has done for us. It's remarkable to me to think about just how complete he has demonstrated his authority to them up to this point. So think about it. Think about the different categories of things that he has done. Uh, it says here that he has, he has cured bodily illnesses. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. He's demonstrated his power over nature. That very first miracle, water to wine. Now he stills the tempest. He's also experienced or demonstrated his authority over the supernatural world. I'm not going to even pretend to understand casting out demons. But I know that he has demonstrated ability over the natural world, over the, the spiritual, non-natural world, um, and he's even raised individuals from the dead. Just absolute, complete authority in every single domain. There should be no doubt in their minds that he is the one that has complete authority. Uh, but again, even though he's demonstrated this to them, even though he has demonstrated that, uh, that to us abundantly, how many times uh, do we doubt? Uh, I just brought to mind some of these other verses, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, this is not saying that storms are not going to come. And Leanne, I'll, I'll get to you in just a second. It's not saying that storms are not going to come. It's not saying that we're going to be successful in every endeavor. Not saying that we're going to be healed from every sickness. But, as God, but if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can exercise true power over us to completely derail our eternity? And then Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 Thinking about being anxious for nothing, maybe one of the hardest commandments. Being anxious for nothing, but going to God, knowing that he is the one that can give us peace. We see Jesus here demonstrating physical peace, earthly peace, but also, of course, he's the only one that can give us true inner peace, knowing that we are in a right relationship with him. So no matter what happens, whether we lose our life, whether we get sick, whether we get lame, we can still have the true peace knowing that we're in a relationship with him. Leanne? I just wanted to say that, um, you know, uh, during this time, people have lost their jobs, they have lost their income, and they have lost their sense of self sometimes. But when I went through what I went through during corona and everything, I, I had a choice. I could either lean on myself or I could lean on God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for a long time i used to lean on self and self will always your flesh will always fail you but god will never fail you yeah and so when you turn to god and say i know it's bad i we've been through this before but if you could just help remind me that we've been through this before and you go to god in prayer and you say whatever happens good or bad i'm going to still trust you because you are a god that never has failed me yeah you're absolutely right. That, that, that's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to is that trust, that faith, and praying for an increased faith and praying that God gives us plenty of opportunities to, to remind ourselves of that, that increased faith. Uh, yeah, David? Uh, David Creech down here, Alex? So, yeah, I had a, a note here that there's three things that we can learn from that. And the first one is how quickly the calm can turn into a storm. Yeah. 
in our lives. And number two, the silence of God does not mean he's not concerned. And three, the storms of life can only be calmed by our Savior, his influence in our life and our faith. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great summary. And you're right. It, 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 can, go, it can go from zero to 60 real quick. Um, and, and, that's, and that's why it's important to have, to have that kind of faith. Uh, let, let's go on to Mark chapter 5. Uh, Mark chapter 5, as they, as they come across, it says they reach the other side. And now uh, my, the New King James says the Gadarenes. This is also the same as the Gerasenes. It's that, that area that I presented, uh, pointed out to you. Uh, but when they arrive here, they're confronted with this man that is full of demons. If you go to Matthew's account, Matthew actually says two men. Uh, very well, certainly could have been two men, and maybe one was just silent. We have this one individual that seems to be the primary talker. Um, regardless, there, there are lots of demons. So it, it, would, it would make sense to me that there are two individuals, and there's this primary one that Jesus is interacting with. But this individual, due to this demon possession, has this exceptional strength to the point that nobody can bind him. He's been shackled. He's been chained. He's been living out in these caves, in, in this kind of uh, uh, desolate area. And he breaks his bonds, and he comes. And what's interesting is that immediately he knows who Jesus is. When we come to verse 6, he says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. So again, my mind immediately, my mind immediately went to James chapter two and verse 19. And it says, you know, you believe, well, good. Even the demons believe. Even, even the demons understand who Jesus is. This individual recognized immediately. And again, I don't know if there's a greater highlight for what we've been talking about. Now, certainly this is a little bit different than the reception to the gospel. We don't have these demons that are being converted. Um, but even among the demons, there is an instant recognition as to who Jesus is and the authority and the power that he has. And there's a recognition that's not even present among the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the old law. But yet this individual says in verse seven, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me immediately recognizes the power and authority that Jesus has, and he knows that Jesus can command them to do anything, and they'll be forced to do it. So he begs uh, these demons. It says they, they beg Jesus not to be uh, sent out. Uh, you know, if, that, that's a little, bit, a little bit confusing to me. Uh, it could possibly be that they knew that if they were sent out, uh, maybe they could not reenter another person. Uh, again, we, we don't know a whole lot about how uh, the, these demons operated, one thought that I had is that even the demons understand how terrible hell is. Even the demons understand how terrible this, this area of torment is. And so to them, preferential to going back to probably where they would have gone, at least in my mind, they said, just cast us into these pigs over here. There's this, this large herd of swine off to the side. And so to them, possessing this herd of swine on the hillside was preferential to going back to wherever they were going to be go when they were cast out. Um, but again, as they're, as they're thrown into this herd of swine, basically panic just ensues. Uh, these, these, these swine just go crazy with the demon possession and they all run off of this hillside directly into the sea. So you can imagine the people of this area, they come and this is the scene they're presented with. An entire herd of swine has acted crazy and all run and killed themselves in the ocean. And then the individual who previously was demon possessed is now sitting normal and clothed. And so when you, when you come down to, I guess it's verse, verse 15, 
They came to Jesus. They saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, that grouping of demons, sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. In their, in their mind, it seems like this is a region that has not had a ton of interaction with Jesus. They, they just don't know what to make of all this. And so they say, listen, you've got to leave. You've got to leave. We don't know what's going to happen next. Are you, are you going to kill more of our herds? Uh, but, but basically, they, they just say, can you please leave? Can you please leave? Well, this individual that has been healed, he asks to go with Jesus. He wants to go with him. And uh, let's see, in verse, verse 19, it says, Jesus did not permit him. But he said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed, and it says in verse 20, and began to proclaim in Decapolis. Uh, Decapolis is this region that was, uh, you think about where the, where the Gerasenes were, probably a little bit south and east of that as well. He began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Uh, it's interesting to me that at other times, and even some times that hopefully we're going to cover today, Jesus comes to individuals and says, please do not tell anybody. Don't, don't spread this around. But yet here, he asks this individual, no, you can, do, you can do more work for me and for the kingdom by going and spreading it. Uh, my, my interpretation there is that, again, this is a region that Jesus has not been able to spend a lot of time in. These individuals aren't sure what they're seeing. And he's saying, the best thing that you can do for me is not to come with me, but to go and tell others of the healing that you've received and of the compassion that I've had on you. And, and the man does that. And it mentions that it has its desired effect in verse 20, that all marvel. This individual was apparently well-known. It was well-known what he was going through. And to see him clothed and normal and in his right mind uh, would have been an incredible testament. Uh, well, let's, let's go on in the, in the chapter, verses 21 and following. It says, they cross over again by boat to the other side. Okay, so now they're coming back to the Capernaum area. Um, and as they, as they come there, they're met by the ruler of the synagogue, this individual named Jairus. Jairus comes to Jesus and he begs for him to come and heal his daughter. He agrees to do this. These great multitudes are following him as he's going to heal the daughter. And as this is happening, there's this woman who exhibits this great faith. As she comes up, she kind of presses through the multitude. It says that she's had this issue of, of blood for 12 years been afflicted with something for 12 years, but she knows that if she can just touch Jesus, it can be cured. And as she comes up, she touches the hem of his garment. Jesus immediately feels something. Uh, again, not, not something that I'm going to pretend to have a full understanding of, but he felt something. He felt, and I don't take it as like a loss of power, like somehow his power was diminished, but as the individual that knew hearts, the individual that knows all, he knew that this individual had been healed. Um, she is healed, but then Jesus asks this question. He says, who, who touched me? Now, the disciples are confused. The disciples are thinking, that, you know, there's, there's hundreds of people here, maybe even thousands. All kinds of people have been touching you. But only one individual touched him with faith and with intent to be healed. And that's a common thread that we see from these individuals that receive miraculous healing, that receive the dead brought back to life, is that they come to him in faith. In my mind, there's no difference between what Jairus is doing and what this woman, what this woman is doing. Jairus comes to them. Uh, the centurion that we studied about last week, they come to Jesus and they come to him in faith, knowing that he has complete power and authority. This woman does the same thing. She comes and she knows she doesn't even have to talk to him. She doesn't even have to get his attention. She just knows that if she can touch him, she can be healed. 
And as Jesus is asking who has touched him, she comes and it mentions there in uh, verse 32, he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Again, I think this is a demonstration of faith and humility on her part. It probably would have been easy to touch him, to feel that you are healed, and just go away. <laughs> Say, listen, I got, I got what I came for. But that's not the faith that she demonstrates. She has the faith to tell him exactly what she has done, to come and to prostrate herself, to fall down before the master. And notice what he says in verse 34. Jesus highlights that. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. He doesn't say, because you touched my garment, it made you well. He says, your faith has made you well. And again, that's the common theme with these individuals that are coming to him. They are coming to him in faith. It's not that he had, you know, like a magic robe on, and he would come and he had this, you know, he had this special thing that everybody would come and touch and kiss. It was the faith. It was the faith that these individuals demonstrated and that allowed him to demonstrate the authority and the miraculous power that he had to heal them. But this also provides an opportunity as he is stopped to do this, uh, Jairus' daughter passes away. And again, I, I just find it, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think humorous is the right word, um, but, but it's interesting to me that an individual has just been healed by simply touching the Savior's garment. Jairus' daughter has died, and they say, okay, don't, don't bother with Jesus anymore. There's no more that he can do here. He, he, he has already demonstrated complete power and authority. He has just healed an individual. He's already raised somebody from the dead. He's calmed the storm. But when Jairus' daughter dies, they say, don't, don't bother the master anymore. That's verse 35. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble him. There's, no, there's nothing more that he can do. Again, even when presented with the evidence right in front of them, they still struggle to grasp it. And, and, I, and I, don't want to, I don't want to necessarily belittle them because, again, that's the same thing that we struggle with. We struggle with, the, with these, these earthly limitations in our mind, these, these very physical, short-sighted limitations that, well, ah, the daughter died. I, I guess you can't do anything now. But, of course, Jesus goes on. Uh, he go, it mentions that he goes on with a much smaller group, um, and he says to them in verse 36, do not be afraid, just believe. Uh, verse 37, Peter, James, and John come. They come into the house, and, and even despite this, this ridicule, these individuals that, that say, uh, that, that, that uh, I think it's there, and in verse, uh, verse 40, it says they ridicule him for saying that he can, for saying that he can bring the girl back, um, but then he demonstrates that. It says, verse 42, immediately the girl arose and walked. She was 12 years old, and they were overcome with amazement. Now, verse 43, he commanded that nobody knows it. He says, uh, he says there that no one should know it. Give her something to eat. If you go over and look in Matthew's uh, gospel, Matthew chapter 9, verse 26, it says, word of this, report of this goes out into all the land. It may be, again, in just thinking about this, this difference, one individual healed, and he says, don't tell anybody, Another individual healed, and he says, go tell everybody. You've you got to think about where he's at, and also think about what he's dealing with. We're going to look at a verse later on that talks about how they wanted to make him king. They wanted to set up this, this earthly kingdom. And I think Jesus knew in certain circumstances that as things spread, it would actually be a hindrance to the true spread of the gospel. That if there were individuals that were only coming to him, again, not coming to him in faith, but just coming to him to possibly get healed or to possibly get something to eat or to possibly have their dead brought back to life, it would be a hindrance to the true spread of the gospel. And so he's selective. But 
still, word of this is going to get out when things this remarkable occur. As we go further uh, throughout the chapter, let's go into, let's go into chapter 6. Um, actually, before that, let's go back to Matthew chapter 9. I forgot about it. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 9 because we do, have, we do have two things that are mentioned here that are not mentioned in Mark's account. In Matthew chapter 9, there verses 27 down through about verse 34, we have two occasions of healing. Uh, the first is two blind men. And again, Jesus asks these individuals specifically in verse 28, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, Lord. He touches their eyes and he says, according to your faith, let it be to you. So again, that common theme, individuals coming to him in faith. He tells them not, uh, not to spread it around, but of course, the news spreads anyway. And then another mute individual in verse 32 and following. And they say there in verse 33, when the demon was cast out, this mute individual is able to, to, able to speak. The multitudes say it was never seen like this in Israel. But what's the reaction of the Pharisees? <laughs> they just can't get over themselves, can they? But the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. This idea is still persisting with these individuals. The, the, the rulers, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, they just can't get it. They can't get it. What I think is interesting, um, and, and I'll tell you, just as a quick aside, uh, I know we're moving so fast that we don't get a ton, of time, a ton of time for comments, but I do have lots of individuals that come up to me afterwards and share their thoughts and comments with me, which is fantastic. Because people bring out things that I haven't necessarily thought of. And one thing that was brought out to me last week was we were talking about the reception and we were talking about the miracles. Is somebody said, you know, it's really incredible. Yes, the miracles. But when you pair the miracles with the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. What an incredible authoritative testimony. Uh, We were talking about, and they pointed out to me, Isaiah chapter 61. Which is talking about the gospel being preached to the poor. If you remember, that's what we were discussing when uh, Jesus was talking to those disciples from John the Baptist. And he said, go tell them about all the people that have been healed and tell them about how the gospel is proclaimed to the the poor. That matches up with Isaiah chapter 61. Well, here we have have healing and healing as prophesied by Isaiah chapter 35. Um, We we don't have necessarily the time to go there, but it specifically mentions talking about individuals that are dumb being able to speak, individuals that were sick being able to be healed. And I just thought that was a wonderful point. You know, yes, these miracles are displaying his power and authority. But for those that were studying the Old Testament, for those that were truly looking for the Messiah, they would be thinking about all these things that were, that were talked about by the prophets, about this one that is going to come, that is going to be the hope of Israel. And he is going to provide true hope, but he's also going to heal, and he's going to preach, and he's going to teach these things to the poor. Uh, let's go ahead and go back, to, let's go back to Mark and try to make a little bit more headway in the time that we have left. Mark chapter 6, he's now going to go uh, from where he's at in the Capernaum area, and, and he is going to go west over to Nazareth. If you, uh, if you recall, he has already been to Nazareth back at the very beginning of his Galilean ministry, and it did not go super well. Uh, he went to Nazareth, and they were astonished at what he did, and then they rejected him. And in fact, they didn't just reject him. Um, you know, the people, the people in the garrisons were nice. They just asked him to leave. Uh, the, the folks in Nazareth tried to kill him. They got this group of individuals and tried to take him and throw him off of a cliff. Um, and, of course, he miraculously passes right through them. Uh, well, the second time go, goes about as well. Um, he, he is, he's rejected. And it says in, in Mark chapter 6, uh, there in verse 5, He could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. 
So an area where he grew up, an area where by all earthly standards, he should have the most in terms of allies and a warm reception. Uh, their, their unbelief persists, despite the wisdom that he displays, despite the mighty works that he's done. And they even say that in verse 2. What wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? They still don't get it. They still can't connect, connect the dots. And it says that he just marvels at the unbelief that is there. Uh, the next thing that's recorded for us, and, and it's recorded somewhat briefly in Mark's gospel, is this sending out of the 12, this, this somewhat limited commission. Um, now, Matthew actually spends a lot of time talking about this. Uh, again, just for sake of time, we're not going to go over there and go through it. But Matthew dedicates all of chapter 10, a little bit at the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and maybe just a verse in chapter 11, talking about these instructions to them. Uh, he sends them out two by two. And again, think about this populated region that we're in. Uh, all of these towns in and around uh, the, the, the lake there. And he gives them these instructions. You know, if you go to Matthew chapter 10, some of the things that I highlighted uh, was to go to the house of Israel. So we're not necessarily going to the Gentiles. Jesus later on, I think in the next couple of months of his ministry, he's going to spend some time further northward with Gentiles. But go to the house of Israel. He says, don't take supplies. Uh, you're going to rely on the people that you're teaching. As you go town to town, uh, you know, you are going to depend on them for your needs. He also is very blunt with them about the kind of reception they're going to get. And if they've been with him, they've already noticed this. And he says, listen, it's not going to be indifferent for you. Don't think that I'm special because they persecute me and reject me. They're going to do the exact same thing to you. You are going to be persecuted. However, don't fear. I'm going to tell you what to say. All the things that you've been hearing in my presence, the things that I've been teaching, there's this gospel of repentance, this gospel of hope, this gospel of a spiritual kingdom. These are the things that I want you to preach and to teach. And he gives them, and he gives them miraculous power. Now, th- think about that for just a second. It's one thing to see somebody else, and it's, it's an incredible thing, to see somebody else be able to work miracles. But can you imagine that person that has done that has now given you the ability to do that? Uh, I, think, I think it was Don. I was, ta- I was talking to Don about this. Uh, you know, just, just picture for a second Judas. <laughs> you know, it, it, it blows my mind that, that you could be there with the Savior day in and day out and see all the things that he's done and betray him. But it's a whole other level to think about the fact that you were able to do that too. You know who you were. You knew that you grew up and you were not special in any means. Before Jesus, you could not do any of these things. He gave you the power to heal people, to work miracles, to cast out demons, and you betrayed that individual. There are going to be, there are going to be others, uh, not, not just to pick on Judas, there are going to be others that are going to desert him in his time of need. These individuals were given the power to work miracles and still rejected him. Again, I think this lesson, is, especially in these, these collection of chapters, is just being hammered home to us that despite mounting evidence all around us in our lives, we can still reject Jesus. We can still come up short in our faith. And that, that's, that's, really, that's really what I see being brought, out, being brought out here. So these disciples have been sent out, um, and, and then the, almost as if, in my mind, almost as if to highlight this, Uh, this is verses, this is 14 through 29 of Mark chapter six, almost as if to highlight this or to emphasize this idea of the persecution they're going to face. We have a little bit of an aside that gives us some background as to what's happened with John the Baptist. Uh, Herod, it says he hears about these individuals that are out there working miracles. And he's like, oh man, is this John the Baptist risen from the dead? 
And then it goes on to explain how John died. Uh, and we're told, just, just for sake of time, of course, that John, as we, as we already know, has spoken out against Herod. Herod took his brother Philip's wife. He had no right to this woman. Took his brother Philip's wife and married her. And John, and John let him know that. What's remarkable to me is that despite, despite this, despite Herod imprisoning him, Herod actually grew to fear him and enjoy listening to him. It says when you go to verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. I don't know if there's a greater testament to the, to the preaching of somebody that you got imprisoned for your teaching because of how, how, how unpopular your message was to this individual, but yet they protect you and they want to hear you and they enjoy hearing you because they recognize the truth of what you're, of what you're teaching. But still, Herod, uh, Herod allows sin and temptation to get the best of him. He makes a hasty oath to uh, his stepdaughter and he promises her that she can, have it, she can have anything up to half his kingdom and she asks for her mother uh, for the head of John the Baptist. And so as not to appear weak or as not to break this oath that he's just made in front of a lot of people, he delivers the head of John the Baptist to her. Uh, and, and this, I think, highlights the persecution and the risks that these individuals were taking as the apostles were going out and teaching. Um, but I don't think we're going to have a whole lot of time uh, to get to the feeding of the 5,000. So we'll just end today, verses 30 through 34. The apostles return. Jesus wants to withdraw in private with them. Uh, if you read Matthew's account, it may be, it mentions there in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13 that he had just heard about uh, hearing this or hearing about the death of John the Baptist. So maybe he wanted to withdraw and mourn with them. Maybe he just wanted to withdraw in private and hear about how their teaching and preaching had gone. But they seek to withdraw in private and, and they're, not, they're not able to. Uh, it mentions in verses 30 and following, uh, verse 34, that he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them. And his compassion was that he wanted to teach them and preach to them. So we will start uh, next week here in Mark with the feeding of the 5,000. And then we'll try to do our best to move on a little bit further than that. Appreciate it.